This program is brought to you by Bible Way Media, overseen by the elders of the Chipman Road Church of Christ in Lee Summit, Missouri. Welcome to the program. This is Don Boyd. I want to welcome you to Opening the Scriptures. Today we're going to study, continue, excuse me, our studies in the book of Romans. And we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 13. Romans 13 is divided into three different sections. The first section is the relation of the Christian with the government. The second section is the Christian's one debt to love. And the third section is the day that is approaching. You know, in Romans 12, verses 17 to 21, Paul discussed social behavior. He said, we're to be at peace with everyone if that is possible at all. We're not to avenge ourselves. And we're over to overcome evil with good, etc. The first eight verses of Romans 13 are designed to avoid any misuse of those verses back in chapter 12. Now, before we get into Romans 13, I want to give a little historical background. In the mind of the Roman civil authorities there in the first century, Christianity was associated with Judaism. We go and we look at Acts chapter 18, verses 12 through 17. We see an example there of what I'm talking about. Acts 18, 12 through 17. It says, And when Gallio was deputy of Achaia, the Jews made insurrection with one accord against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuadeth men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said unto the Jews, If it were a matter of wrong or wicked lewdness, O ye Jews, reason would that I should bear with you. But if it be a question of words and names and of your law, look ye to it, for I will be no judge of such matters." And he drave them from the judgment seat. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the chief ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat, and Gallio cared for none of those things. And the Jews, they were known for their rebellious actions. You know, during the time of Jesus, they wanted to make him an earthly king in John 6.15. After the miracle that Jesus had performed, they decided he'd be a good ruler, he'd be a good king. But John 6.15 says, When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. So they were known for their rebellious actions. In Acts 8.36, we have an example. Acts 8.36 says, before, For before these days rose up Theudas, boasting himself to be somebody, to whom a number of men, about four hundred, joined themselves, who was slain, and all as many as obeyed him were scattered and brought to naught. <clears throat> That's Gamaliel's advice there, whenever they were talking to the council there about the apostles that they had taken prisoner. In Acts 18, verses 1 and 2, we see another example of the Jewish rebellious nature. Acts 18, 1 and 2 says, After these things Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth and found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because that Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome and came unto them. You know, Suetonius wrote that the Jews were exciting tumults at Rome is why they were kicked out of Rome. And because of the Jewish rebellion against Rome, a few years after that the letter to the Romans was written, Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70. And the bloody defeat of that rebellion came to an end at Masada in AD 73. At Masada, you can still, if you look up a picture of the of Masada there on the internet, on the right side of that, you can still see the siege ramp 
that was made by the Romans to get into Masada. There were 960 men, women, and children that committed mass suicide instead of being killed or enslaved by the Romans. Only two women and five children were found alive, and that is according to Josephus' work. So this situation, you know, all the tumults, rebellious nature, and things such as that, made it necessary for Christians to avoid any and all revolutionary ambitions or actions. So they needed to make sure that they were seen as being separate from what the Jews were doing and that they would live as good citizens of the Roman Empire, except they would not worship the Roman gods. In John 18.36, we see again Christianity must not be perceived as an earthly kingdom that rivals civil governments. In John 18.36, it says, Jesus answered, and he's speaking to Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight, that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from hence. Jesus' kingdom, the church, is a spiritual kingdom. It is not a, an earthly, physical kingdom, civil government type thing. So with all this in mind, let's go to Romans 13, and in verses 1 through 7, we see the relation of the Christian with government. First of all, we are told, we are commanded to submit ourselves to the government in Romans chapter 13, verse 1. It says, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. <clears throat> every soul, that would refer to both Christians and heathens, and it says that we are to subject ourselves. The word subject from hypostaso also means submit. Thayer's third definition is to subject oneself, obey. We are to be obedient to the government. Albert Barnes in his commentary made this comment about that verse, and I quote, the word denotes that kind of submission which soldiers render to their officers. It implies subordination, a willingness to occupy our proper place, to yield to the authority of those over us. The word used here does not designate the extent of the submission, but merely enjoins it in general. The general principle will be seen to be that we are to obey in all things which are not contrary to the law of God, unquote. So again, we are to obey the government as long as that does not go against any of the commands that God has given. Higher powers, there in Romans 13, 1, refers to the government could be the government in control of a nation, the government in control of a state or a city or a region, whatever you want to say there. But he also says that the powers that be are ordained of God. In other words, the powers that are in existence are ordained of God. Vincent's word studies says of that phrase, are ordained, it says, and I quote, perfect tense having been ordained and the ordinance remains in force, unquote. So the powers that be have been ordained and that ordinance is still in force. It doesn't stop. You know, God sets up governments and pulls them down as he wills. 
in Daniel chapter 2 verse 21 Daniel chapter 2 verse 21 of God it says and he changeth the times and the seasons he removeth kings and setteth up kings he giveth wisdom unto the wise and knowledge to them that know understanding and then in Daniel 4:17, and I'm not going to say we can understand all that's happening in the unseen world, but he says to Nebuchadnezzar, this matter is by the decree of the watchers, the demand and the demand by the word of the holy ones to the intent that the living may know that the most high ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will, and setteth up over it the basest of men. In Daniel 4.25, he tells Nebuchadnezzar this, that they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beast of the field, and they shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and they shall wet thee with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over thee till thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it, it to whoso, whomsoever he will. We notice in Daniel 4, 34 and 35. Daniel 4, 34 and 35 it says, And at the end of the days, that being the seven times, Again, seven times. We do not have a specific time period for that. But the number seven being the perfect or complete number is given there to show that those seven times were the perfect amount of time for Nebuchadnezzar to come to the realization that he did here. Again, Daniel 4, 34 and 35. And at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven, and mine understanding returned unto me, and I blessed the Most High. And I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? So God is in control. In John 19, verses 10 and 11, John 19, 10 and 11, we see again that God, well here, Jesus respected the government, and he was about to be executed. It says, Then Pilate said unto him, Seest thou not unto, or say, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee, and have power to release thee? Jesus answered, Thou couldst have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. Therefore he that delivereth me unto thee hath the greater sin. He's telling Pilate, yeah, you're going to sin, but those that delivered him had greater sin. But he's also saying there that Pilate's authority, his power, came from above. One vital principle that determines the destiny of a nation is the righteous nature of that nation. When we look in Psalm 9, verse 17, and I'm going to be reading the literal translation this time. Psalm 9:17. It says, The wicked shall be turned to Sheol, all the nations forgetting God. The Hebrew word Sheol is the same meaning as the Greek word Hades or Hades. In other words, it will be brought to death. In Proverbs 14.34, Proverbs 14.34, it says, Righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. 
whenever you look at the immorality, the evil, the wickedness that is going on in the United States of America, it makes you wonder how long is God going to allow this to continue? In Romans 13, 2, we find that resisting the government is the same as resisting God. Romans 13, 2. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. Not only from the government, but from God as well. You see, human government is set forth to bring security to people. You go back to the book of Judges. In Judges 17.6, we see, and you read through the book of Judges, there was no security there for the people. Judges 17.6 says, In those days there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. There is situation ethics. Everybody doing right what they consider to be right. In Titus 3, look at verses 1 and 2. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. It says, Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work, to speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. In 1 Peter 2, verses 13 through 15, 1 Peter 2, 13 through 15, it says, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme, or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. You know, verse 13 there stresses this fact. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. What are those ordinances of men. One of them is a stop sign. People pull up to a stop sign and they just kind of look and go on without even stopping. And yet Peter said, obey every ordinance of man. There's those little signs that have a P on it with a big circle and a slash through it, which means no parking. That is an ordinance of man. Those little signs that show no U-turn are an ordinance of man. And those red, yellow, and green lights, whenever you run a red light, you may not get caught by the policeman, but God caught you. And you disobeyed an ordinance of man, which is sin. What about that no parking on pavement? And so many others. Flagman ahead, slow down for road construction. Speed limit, 50, 55, 65. If we speed, we disobey an ordinance of man. And yet people go, well, I don't think that's right. That shouldn't be, well, that should be faster on this road. Well, that's not what it's posted as. Do not enter, things such as that. And any other ordinance of man that we can think of, not littering and things such as that, many, many others could be brought up. But we are to submit ourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. In Acts 5.29, though, we find that if man's law is in opposition to God's law, 
we must obey God and not man. In chapter 5, verse 29 of Acts says, Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. And what was their command that they were not obeying? They were commanded not to speak in the name of Jesus Christ. That is what they were opposing in obeying God because they were going to continue to speak about Jesus Christ. In Daniel 6.10, you remember that there in Persia, in Babylon, where Daniel was, that the king, Darius, had been convinced into making a rule that no man should pray to any god or anything else for the next 30 days. In Daniel 6.10, it says, Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went into his house and his windows being opened in his chamber toward Jerusalem, he kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did aforetime. So even though they were commanded not to pray to anyone other than the king, Daniel even opened his doors, opened his windows, excuse me. He wasn't hiding the fact that he was going to pray to God, which was against the law. And we know what happened to Daniel. He was cast into a lion's den for that. But God rescued him from that fate. Now it says there, resist. We are not to resist. It says, whosoever therefore resisteth the power. The Greek word anti-asomai. Thayer defines that word as to range in battle against, to oppose oneself, resist. And you know, it's interesting that it seems that most Christians will promote their political party and their views more than they promote the gospel. And when we, take, when we resist the government... We're taking a stand against God. Brother Robert Taylor made this comment, and I quote, To resist, stand against it, and act rebelliously toward it, is the exact equivalent of withstanding, acting against, and in rebellion of Jehovah's ordinance. Why is this so? Because God has made provision for human government. Such people are not only law violators in the eyes of the civil government, but also in the sight of Almighty God, unquote. You know, an example of resisting the government, people that say, quote, they can take my guns when they get it out of my cold, dead hands, unquote. That's rebellion against God. We don't like it, do we? But we are to submit ourselves to the government. We will receive judgment from the very authority against whom we rebel. And you'll notice that Paul did not stipulate what kind of government under which we are to live and serve. He didn't say you have to live in a republic or under democracy. You, need, you could be living under communism, Marxism, I mean, whatever ism you want to call it. Because Christianity is worldwide and age-lasting. And it is going to fall under many different kinds of government. And we are not to rebel against that government. We may live under, again, a monarchy where we have a king or a queen or whatever, a socialist, a communist, a republic type of government, but no matter what kind of government we live under, our attitude and our actions are to be obedient. Now, we may resist and disobey the laws of government, again, 
only when human law and divine law are in conflict with one another. The purpose and mission of the civil government is given in Romans 13.3. Romans 13.3. It says, For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. The ideal government is one that is a terror to evil and praises good. And there are all kinds of examples throughout history where that's not always the case. And then you think about it, whenever Paul there wrote there in chapter 13, 1, let every soul be subject to the higher powers, who was the emperor of Rome? It was Nero. He was the emperor of Rome when this letter was written. And what was Paul saying? Submit yourselves even to Nero. Roy Deaver made this comment, and I quote, Countless numbers gave their lives in the arenas with starved lions, and this to the delight of heathen spectators. It is said that frequently the Roman skies were lighted by the burning bodies of Christians, unquote. Why do we bring that point up? Well, that just shows that whenever human law is in conflict with divine law, human law may be so cruel as to do what the Romans did. The humans give, or, you know, enforcing that human law can be cruel. And Christians are to be in submission to the government authorities so as to receive praise and honor from the same as being law-abiding citizens. You know, in 1 Peter 2, look at verses 15 to 17. 1 Peter 2, 15 to 17. For so is the will of God, that with well-doing you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. You know, if we are lawless, if we live lawless lives, you know, we oh, go back to example a while ago. We run stop signs, or we run red lights, or we speed, or we lie, or we cheat, whatever. If we're lawless before pagans, can we blame them if they criticize the church for hypocrisy? If we violate the civil law, we should be afraid of being punished. In Romans 13, 4, civil leaders are to be a minister to God for good. Romans 13, 4. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Well, I want to look at that word, first of all, minister of God, from the Greek word diakonos. Thayer defines diakonos as one who executes the commands of another, especially of a master, a servant, attendant, or minister. You know, Nero and Pharaoh back in the Exodus were ministers of God but they failed miserably in fulfilling their responsibility. In Judges 21-25, and this is just like what we read a while ago in Judges 17, government maintains order and discipline to regulate the lives of those who would slip into anarchy. And that's exactly what Judges 21-25 says that the nation of Israel was in at that time, and that's anarchy. In those days there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Whoever was the strongest was the ruler. In 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2, 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2, 
He says, I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all good godliness and honesty. When was the last time, you know, I don't know whether you're Republican, Democrat, Independent, whatever. When was the last time you prayed for that president you didn't like? Whether that was Donald Trump, Joe Biden, Bill Clinton, uh, whoever it may have been. When was the last time you prayed for him? And you see what we're to be praying about? We may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. What happens when there is no respect for authority? When the hands of law enforcement are tied, there is no fear produced. You think about gangs, drive-by shootings, vandalism, theft, drug dealers, assaults, riots, protests. And then he says, they do not bear the sword in vain. And you know what a sword's used for, right? Cutting lettuce, yeah, no. A sword is used for killing. A sword is a lethal or deadly weapon. And the sword in the New Testament refers to execution. In Matthew 26, 52, Matthew 26, 52, after Peter had cut off Malchus's ear with a sword, then said Jesus unto him, Put up again thy sword into his place, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. You know what Peter was doing there? He was fighting against the government. And Jesus said, Stop it. Don't do it. In Luke twenty-one twenty-four. It says, Luke 21, 24, And they shall fall by the edge of the sword, and shall be led away captive into all nations, and Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. That's talking about the destruction of the Jerusalem. When you look at the destruction of Jerusalem, and I'll turn over to Matthew chapter 24. I've got a few notes marked there. Matthew 24, in speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem, there were 1,110,000 people that died in the destruction of Jerusalem. All the trees were cut down for crucifixions. 97,000 more were taken and slain. The sword refers to execution, to death. In Acts 12, 1 and 2, again saying that the sword is used for execution. Acts 12, 1 and 2, Now about that time Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church, and he killed James the brother of John with the sword. In Acts 16, 27, there the Philippian jailer event said in the keeper of the prison awaking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open drew out his sword and would have killed himself supposing that the prisoners had fled in Hebrews 11:34 Hebrews 11 that hall of faith that we talk about Verse 34 says, quench the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. In other words, escaped death. Out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. <clears throat> and then we look down in verse 37 of Hebrews 11. It says they were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. So again, slain with the sword. In Acts 25, 11, Paul is on trial before Festus. 
And he says there, for if I be an offender or have committed anything worthy of death, I refuse not to die. But if there be none of those, these things whereof these accuse me, no man may deliver me unto them. I appeal unto Caesar. So right there Paul said, if I have committed a crime that is worthy of death under Roman law, I refuse not to be executed. But he said, all those things they accuse him of, he's innocent. He was not going to go back to be tried by the Jerusalem council or before them because he knew that they were going to kill him. That's why he appealed to Caesar. They couldn't touch him then. So Paul was an inspired apostle and yet he declared that civil powers have every right to take the life of one who has committed a crime worthy of death according to the government. The threat of capital punishment is a real deterrent to certain criminal acts. People say, well, it doesn't, it didn't, won't, that won't deter anybody. Well, it deters the guy that did the act. In Ecclesiastes 8.11, Ecclesiastes 8.11, it says, because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. If a criminal gets away with a crime and he knows he's not going to be punished for it, what's going to stop him from doing it again? If a criminal kills somebody and then he's turned loose, hey, I got away with it then. Why not do it again? It's, I don't like whatever so-and-so does. He kills him again. You know, if they'd have executed him in the first place, no one else would have died. But... In Romans 12, 19, Paul made this very clear that we cannot avenge ourselves. Romans 12, 19, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord, in one way the Lord repays is through government. Avenge not yourselves. You know, back in the Old Testament, they made six cities of refuge so that the person who slew someone else accidentally could flee to one of these cities, make his case known, and he could stay in that city. He had to stay in that city until the death of the high priest because there was an avenger of blood one who would take revenge on him if he stepped outside that city. But we today cannot avenge ourselves. Do not take the law into our own hands. But we can defend ourselves when we are in danger. In Luke 22, 36 to 38, Luke 22, 36 to 38, this is Jesus speaking to his apostles. Then said he unto them, But now he that hath a purse, let him take it. Likewise his script. He that hath no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say unto you that this that, this that is written must yet be accomplished in me. And he was reckoned among the transgressors, for the things concerning me have an end. And they said, Lord, behold, here are two swords. And he said unto them, it is enough. He didn't say, throw them away. They could have those swords to protect themselves, not to fight against the government, as Peter had tried to do, as we saw earlier in Matthew 26. But we can defend ourselves. In Acts 23, look at verses 12 through 24. Acts 23, 12 through 24. It says, And when it was day, certain of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under a curse, 
saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. And they were more than 40 which had made this conspiracy. And they came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great curse that we will eat nothing until we have slain Paul. Now therefore ye with the council signify to the chief captain that he bring him down unto you tomorrow as though you would inquire something more perfectly concerning him. And we, or ever he come near, are ready to kill him. And when Paul's sister's son heard of their lying in wait, he went and entered into the castle and told Paul. Verse 17. Then Paul called one of the centurions unto him and said, Bring this young man unto the chief captain, for he hath a certain thing to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the chief captain and said, Paul the prisoner called me unto him and prayed me to bring this young man unto thee who has something to say unto thee. Then the chief captain took him by the hand and went with him aside privately and asked him, What is it that thou hast to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to desire thee that thou wouldest bring Paul down tomorrow into the council, as though they would inquire somewhat of him more perfectly. But do not thou yield unto them, for there lie in wait for him of them more than forty men, which have bound themselves with an oath that they would neither eat nor drink uh, till they have killed him. And now are they ready, looking for a promise from thee. So the chief captain then let the young man depart and charged him, See thou tell no man that thou hast showed me these things to me. And he called unto him two centurions, saying, Make ready two hundred soldiers to go to Caesarea, and horsemen threescore and ten, and spearmen two hundred, at the third hour of the night, and provide them beasts that they may set Paul on, and bring him safe unto Felix the governor. <clears throat> you see right there, Paul used the Roman sword for protection. They would not attack. What do we got here? 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen. So you've got 470 armed men ready to protect Paul. In Exodus 22, look at verses 2 and 3. Exodus 22, verses 2 and 3. And this is called looking at... <coughs> We can protect ourselves when we're in danger, but do not get revenge. Exodus 22, 2 and 3. If a thief be found breaking up and be smitten that he die, there shall no blood be shed for him. If the sun be risen upon him, there shall be blood shed for him. For he should make full restitution. If he have nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. So what is he saying there? You are in imminent danger when you're being robbed. You can protect yourself up to killing that individual. But if it's the next day and you find that individual, you do not take the law into your own hands. You can turn him in. But if you kill him, then you should be executed for that death, that murder. That would be murder. In Romans 13, 5, there are two reasons that are set forth for our being in submission to the governmental powers. Romans 13, 5. Wherefore, in other words, because of everything we just looked at, ye must needs to needs be subject not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. You see, failure to obey will bring judicial wrath upon us. We'll face the wrath of governmental officials and we'll face the wrath of God. Christians are not to be out making trouble in the world. 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 4. 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 4, we read some of this earlier. I exhort therefore that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, 
for kings and for all that are in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Right there you see that if you obey the government as far as it is not you know, against God's laws, you might be able to bring someone in the government to Christ because you are living that good life. We must be in subjection because failure to do so will violate our conscience because we have not obeyed God in this matter. In Acts 24, verse 16, Acts 24, verse 16, it says, And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. And that would also be toward the government. There are men and women there. In Ephesians 6, 5 through 8, Ephesians 6, 5 through 8 says, Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to, your, to the flesh, with fear and trembling and singleness of your heart as unto Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. Same thing goes with the government. We are to obey the government as we would the Lord. 1 Timothy 1.5 1 Timothy 1.5 says, Now the end of the commandment is charity or love out of a pure heart, and of a good conscience, and of faith unfeigned, in other words, sincere. In 1 Samuel 26, 9 and 10, we need to trust God to do what is right. 1 Samuel 26, 9 and 10, of King Saul there, David said to Abishai, destroy him not, for who can stretch forth his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? David said, furthermore, as the Lord liveth, the Lord shall smite him, or his day shall come to die, or he shall descend into battle and perish. So just trust God to do what's right. In Romans 13, 6 and 7, it says, We are to pay our taxes and fees. Romans 13, 6 and 7. For this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers attending continually upon this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. The word for minister here is a different word from verse 4. This is liturgos. Thayer defines it as a public minister, a servant of the state. So civil authorities render a service to us and they serve a role that is demanded by God. So we want to ask the question though, what is this very thing there at the end of verse 6? The context suggests the punishment of evildoers. Tribute and custom refers to taxes on persons, properties, imports, exports, whatever taxes are on. In Acts 26, 24, and 25, fear and honor cover the right attitude and actions of respect and dignity that we are to extend to those in public office. Acts 26, 24, and 25. And as he thus spake for himself, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, thou art beside thyself. Much learning has made thee mad. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak forth the words of truth and soberness. You notice Paul didn't jump back at him. Christ authorized paying tribute to civil magistrates also. Look at Matthew 17, 24 to 27. Matthew 17, 24 to 27. And when they were come to Capernaum, they that received the tribute money came to Peter and said, Doth not your master pay tribute? He said, Yes. And when he was coming into the house, Jesus prevented him, saying, 
What thinkest thou, Simon? Of whom do kings of the earth take custom or tribute, of their own children or of strangers? Peter said unto him, Of strangers. Jesus saith unto him, Then are the children free. Notwithstanding, lest we should offend them, go thou to the sea, and cast an hook, and take up the fish that first cometh up. And when thou hast opened his mouth, thou shalt find a piece of money, that take, and give unto them for me and thee. In Matthew twenty-two seventeen to 21 you know, they've come questioning Jesus, tempting him. Matthew twenty-two seventeen to 21 says, Tell us therefore, what thinkest thou? Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why tempt ye me, ye hypocrites? Show me the tribute money. And they brought unto him a penny. And he said unto them, Whose is this image and superscription? They say unto him, Caesar's. Then saith he unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things which are God's. You know, we may abhor the ways in which our tax money is used, but God will hold the powers that be accountable for not serving as they should. Think of Nero, uh, Nero and Pharaoh. And God will hold people responsible for not paying their taxes. So God authorized government and everyone has the responsibility to obey the civil law unless the law of the land is in conflict with God's law. Government has the God-given right to inflict punishment on evildoers even up to the point of execution. And because the government needs finances to operate, we must all pay all the taxes that are required of us because not to do so is not just against civil law. It is against the law of God. Well, again, this is Don Boyd. I want to thank you for tuning in today. And Lord willing, next week we'll travel a little further through Romans chapter 13. We thank you for joining us today. We hope you have enjoyed this program. You can find out more about Byway Media by visiting us at bywaymedia.org. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find all of our podcasts and all major podcast platforms. As always, we thank you for listening.